Amen. Uh, please can you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, and we'll be focusing on the first few verses. Um, but in particular, we'll be uh, focusing on this idea of peace and security found in verse 3. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But brethren, ye are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Um, before we come to the preaching of the word, let us pray. Uh, please let us pray. Merciful God and Father, we thank you that we can come before you now as your people um, and that we can just hear the word of the Lord um, exposited and explained to us. We pray, O oh God, that you would be so kind as to uh, make it effectual to strengthen the hearers and the speaker alike and that you would cause us all to appreciate something of the beauty of the peace that only Christ himself can give. Um, Father, we pray that you would draw close to us now. Help us, O oh God, by your power and by your spirit, O oh God, really do strengthen us down to the inner man um, and really just, just be with us. For Father, apart from you, we really are nothing. Um, and so we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's one of those days where I have a cold, so please do bear with me. Um, winter eats me alive, so, uh, so I don't really do well in this particular period. So I won't be speaking as loudly, ho hopefully. Um, otherwise, the second service, my voice will be gone. Um, but yes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Um, 1 Thessalonians is an interesting book. In terms of the context of the book, it's actually Paul's... I know in terms of the, the way that we order our New Testament at the moment, we, 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 don't, we don't see it like this, but actually... First Thessalonians was the first letter written by Paul to any of the churches um, that's actually recorded in the scriptures. And so the context for First Thessalonians is Acts 17. So Acts 17 is where Paul goes out and he preaches to, um, to those who, have the, who serve the unknown God, etc., etc. Um, but when he, goes out to, when he goes out to Acts 17 to begin to preach, um, he actually, the people there receive the word readily. He's preaching to both Jews and Greeks out there, and they receive the word happily. And because they receive the word so well, they quickly form a church out there. But within a month's time, Caesar's camp has already been aggravated, and Caesar at this point is he's, he's, he's leading, he's creating a huge Roman Empire, um, and he's the only, he, he wants to be the only king in the area. He wants to be the only one that's worshipped and served. And so Caesar gets angry, and his, and his, and his soldiers don't take it. The patriots, they, they can't take this, this idea that the people would begin to worship somebody else. And so they get this wind of this Christian religion whereby they're worshipping this risen saviour, this Jesus Christ. And they say, listen, there can only be one king. Either you serve Caesar or you serve nobody. And so what they did was they began to persecute them so badly, and Paul, um, with his entourage, essentially had to flee the city of Thessalonica because it was dangerous for them to continue to stay there. And so within a month of being there, they had to leave. So you can imagine at this point, the people have received the word readily. They've just established the first church but in Thessalonica, but they've had to run away before they could even 
see that they got established or that they built up a regular pattern of faith or that they'd really learned and understood the things that were contained in the scriptures properly. And so it's problematic. And so what Paul does is, when he's away, he's now wondering about their safety. He's anxious. He's thinking, how are they doing, these people that I love so deeply, but I can't even be with them as they've just started out in the faith? These young Christians who have had to leave behind so quickly, how are they doing? And so what he does is, first, he actually sends Timothy, you see in chapter 2, it says that he actually sent Timothy out there to go and check on them. And Timothy comes back and he reports, actually, they're flourishing. They're doing very well. You know, we've checked on other churches before and they've not been doing so well. But this church, even though you weren't with them for long, they're doing well. They are continuing in the faith faithfully. They are doing a good work out there. And so Paul, in this letter, what he actually seeks to do is just to reconnect with them as a people. It's a letter of thanksgiving, almost. Right? And so the first three chapters, he actually spends just saying how thankful he is um, that they've been saved and how they once served idols, but how they've now turned to the living God. And how even though he can't be with them physically, he longs to see them. And how he was thankful that Timothy was able to go out there and meet with them. And how all of these things, how, how even though they're suffering and they're being persecuted, he also is being persecuted. But guess what? Christ was persecuted and he's the one whom we serve. And he's reminding them of all these ideas. And then eventually, in chapters 4 to 5, Paul just wants to tell them, continue growing. Continue growing in love. Continue growing in holiness. And continue growing in hope. Those are the three themes. He actually, in the little intersection before, when he gets to that, he says um, in verses verse 12 of chapter 3 he says and the lord make you to increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men even as we do towards you may establish your hearts and unblameless i mean unblameable in holiness before god even our father and at the coming with the lord jesus christ and all his saints so essentially they're to grow in love towards one another in holiness where they're um, and where they're blameless and finally in the lord jesus christ awaiting him in hope right and so those are the three ideas that he raised out there and actually the rest of thessalonians the first thessalonians is actually him just expositing that so he begins with love and then he goes on to holiness this is the will of god your sanctification etc and then he gets to this section in chapter 4 he starts to deal with the idea of hope because you have to appreciate if they're being persecuted even to the point of death their biggest concern at this point was but what happens about those believers who die what happens to them and so actually in chapters 4 from verse 11 or so he actually starts to walk through what it looks like for them to even though they die how they will actually live right and then in chapter 5 he starts to deal with this idea of setting where you place your hope right and so hope today this this section where he's dealing with hope that's our focus today in chapter 5 and so just to give you some by way of introduction into this let me read you a quote i've come upon something that deeply disturbs me he said we have fought hard and long for integration as I believe we should have and I know that we will win but I've come to believe that we are integrating into a burning house and I'm afraid that even as we integrate 
we are walking into a place that does not understand that this nation needs to be deeply concerned with the plight of the poor and the disenfranchised. Until we commit ourselves to ensuring that the underclass is given justice and opportunity, we will continue to perpetuate the anger and violence that tears at, this, at the soul of this nation. I fear I am integrating my people into a burning house. These were the words of Dr. Martin Luther King shortly before he died. It's interesting because in 1954 to 1968, the US status quo was being challenged by what we call the civil rights movement. And in that movement, we had people like W.E.B. Du Bois and um, Rosa Parks who led, uh, who were at the forefront of the movement, who were leading it and fighting for, against the social injustices. But as figureheads of that movement in particular, two key people, at least by the way of speaking and oratory, there were two people that were really at the forefront. Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And it was interesting because even though they both wanted equality for black people in America who were currently, being who were currently suffering and, and undergoing oppression, they wanted it by two completely different means, right? At least that's how they were often portrayed. And Martin Luther King obviously believed, or at least was portrayed to believe in this peaceful protest, right? He said that darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Whereas you have someone like Malcolm X on the other hand, who believed that all creatures were made in God's image and freedom wasn't something that was to be requested or given, but was something to be taken because it was inherent and belonged to the people. And so he would say something like, this is why I say it's the ballot or the bullet, it's liberty or death, it's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. He believed in a violent means of taking back freedom for black people. But the thing is, in later life, both of them began to converge and, and somewhat come towards a middle ground, right? Malcolm X began to realize that maybe violence wasn't always the answer and that some people were actually for them and trying to help the plight of the oppressed. And at the same time, Martin Luther King started to think to himself, actually, maybe peace isn't always going to be the way to get there. But the thing that strikes me is that even though they both began to converge, irrespective of how close they actually got to that final goal, when he was closer than ever, when they had finally almost got to the point whereby people were going to be equal, at least in the sense they were fighting for, and there was going to be peace, at least in the sense they were fighting for, when he got closer than ever, that was when he said those words, I fear I am integrating my people into a burning house. It doesn't matter what kind of picture we've painted of peace in this side of eternity, we will never have true peace before, uh, if it's not given to us by Christ himself. And what's actually happening here in this text, when it says about peace and, uh, peace and security, what Paul is doing, or peace and safety in verse 3, Paul is actually playing on terminology that is present in the day. You have to appreciate, Caesar Augustus was actually one of the greatest emperors of their day. Caesar Augustus was the leader or the first king in what they called Pax Romana. And Pax Romana was a 200 year period whereby Rome not only grew to be a significant superpower, but Rome got to the point whereby it experienced no more warfare for 200 years. 
over 200 years, they had taken peace by force. They had crushed all their enemies. And they got to that point whereby nobody wanted it with Rome. Right? They were, they were that kind of guy. And in that sense, Caesar felt that he was the type of king that meant anybody who even thought to threaten his peace had to be obliterated. Anyone who thought that they could usurp his kingship had to be subdued. And so what you actually have is Caesar then seeing these Christians and thinking, actually, I'm the one who offers peace and safety. Right? That was what he had posted all around. Caesar brings peace and safety. Caesar brings peace and safety. And so when Paul quotes it here, what he's saying is actually, listen, Caesar's saying peace and safety, but Caesar can't truly offer you peace and safety. Because thief, like a thief in the night, the day of the Lord is coming. Right? And so Caesar's at this point where he's trying to offer them one of two peace. Either you take my peace or Christ's peace. But if you don't take my peace, it's a peace, your peace will be disturbed. Right? He's given them this kind of ultimatum whereby Paul is saying that actually, even though it looks serene, and it looks like they found an ideal on their side of the world, the house that they've built is a burning house. It's a house that's coming down, in the words of MLK, right? It's a house that is actually on fire. It looks serene. It looks peaceful. It looks safe. But just because they have built, they have built the American dream almost in one sense, or just because you have the life that you think you've always wanted, that doesn't mean you have true peace. Your house could still be on fire and everything that you've built. And so, in this point of um, just peace and security, several points, right? One, that peace, Rome's peace would never last, right? Several things that Paul is arguing. One, he's arguing that Rome's peace will never last, right? 200 plus years of peace is still but a moment. A lifetime of peace and prosperity is still but a moment. Because the thing is, if that peace that you have can be disturbed by death and judgment, then it's not true peace. Right? When we talk about um, life, we don't just think about it in terms of when we go into the grave now. Right? Because we appreciate that after death, there's a point that every man should die once, and after that they face the judgment. We see that there is more to life than just your 70 years on this earth. We see after that there's an eternity to be gained, right? An eternity to be lived. Or an eternity whereby we will face judgment, right? And so it's but a moment, even if you have or secure yourself 200 years of bliss, even if you, as, as, a, as a community, or even if you secure yourself a whole lifetime of peace, as far as your life is concerned on this earth right now, it is still but a moment in the grand scheme of things. And how would you, what's the point of, dare I say, preparing for 80 years here when you're going to lose your life for all eternity? Right? Peace, well, Rome's peace will never last. And Rome's peace was shallow. Right? I remember when I got on honeymoon and I got to, um, we went to, uh, I say, I went to, we went to Maldives, right? And when we went to the Maldives, we, we got there and it was like a place I'd never, I'd never seen before, right? 
one small island, <laughs> I say one small island, 220 small islands or so. Each island was given, had its own resort on the island. And so the resort took up the whole island. I sat down and I said to myself, wow, what is this that we've come to? I said, this can't be live. I sat down and I said, this thing is amazing. You know, at night, you just see fish jumping through the sea as you're walking around, like in, the, like in um, I was going to say shark's tail. I don't think you see fish jumping, but you see, you know what I mean? It was crazy, it was crazy, it was amazing. We went swimming through the, and you see everything, like just, it was so amazing. Everything was so cool. You know, we even swam with sharks. Even the sharks were peaceful. That's how amazing it was. I'm being serious. And when we were there, the, it got to the point where, you know, we're speaking to the locals and all this kind of stuff, and they always have a smile on their face, and X, Y, and Z. And then eventually, over time, we started, because we were there for two weeks, we started to learn bits and bobs in their language, just because you think, you know, it helps you to, to integrate more, et cetera, et cetera. And because we started to learn the odd word in their language, and they, and, they, and they started to relate to us more, and they started to open up to us more, et cetera. But something that they instantly showed us was actually that even though things look peaceful, it's not as peaceful as it seems on the outside. There's actually a lot of political instability. There's actually a lot of oppression. But as a people, we're commanded not to speak out against it and not to let any of it hit the news. Otherwise, it will ruin the tourism aspect of our country. And so they cared more for the perception of peace than the substance of peace. And in Rome, they had the same kind of issue. They wanted you to fall in line or fall by the wayside. If you didn't fall in line with Caesar's um, regime, you had no voice. You weren't allowed to speak up. You weren't allowed to worship the, the one and true living God. You weren't allowed to do certain things and be in certain places. Because ultimately, this was the kind of peace that we were ultimately forcing upon the people. Just because you try and take peace by force doesn't mean it's truly any kind of peace with real substance, right? Just because you try and create um, some falsified sense of peace in your life, I stack as much money as I want, I um, buy as many houses as I can buy, I wear fancy clothes and do all of these types of things, that doesn't mean that death still can't strike you at any moment. It's not true peace. If that's where you place your peace, then it's a shallow peace. We saw Hurricane Katrina strip away loads of people's peace. Rome's peace was misinformed. They think peace means a season whereby there was no physical warfare. For the Christian, peace means a time that there's no more war with God. They had the right concept, but they had the wrong enemy, right? For us, we know that the greatest war in which the Christian is facing or the person humanity is facing is not just their enmity with one another, but their enmity with the living God. The fact that they shouldn't be scared of the man who can crush the body, but God who can crush the body and the soul. The war that we have with God is a war that is not to be overlooked. We don't have peace and security or peace and safety unless God himself declares that the war is over. Hence why the scripture says in verses 2 and 4, right? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, right? They will be surprised. 
because they've not understood the peace and the war that they're currently undergoing. And finally, Rome's peace just isn't worth it, right? Their peace can only take you so far. But as I said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to, and to build up all these walls of marble, etc., and ultimately to lose your soul within them? It's pointless. Paul says, don't place your hope there because even if it gets you to the grave, it can no longer... This is the thing. Even if it gets you to the grave, where does your marble or where does your gold or where does your silver take you? It doesn't even make you more comfortable in death. It doesn't help, it doesn't help your case in judgment. It doesn't mean you can buy yourself a better lawyer when it comes to pleading your case before the living God. But Paul says, for us, we don't place our hope there, right? Because even if we go into the grave, like you see in, in, in the end of chapter 4, our God, our Christ Jesus himself has entered the grave before us. And it couldn't hold him, so it can't hold you. Right? And so point two, night and day. Right? So peace and safety was the first point, but night and day. Notice the difference in our peace and security is the, the peace and the security that we have as Christians is completely different to the peace and security uh, that the non-believer has. And so when we read this text, actually what it constantly starts to do is just use such strong words to contrast us, right? Think of it like this. When we spoke about Martin Luther King and MLK, um, I almost said Martin Luther King and MLK, imagine. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, right? We often perceive them as two completely different extremes, right? Two extremes. And, you know, requesting it or taking it, etc., etc., when it comes to the idea of peace. But, in many senses, whoever you're more inclined to, it doesn't actually matter. Because that might be how you assess it from, a world's, from the world's perspective. But in, from a Christian's point of view, the spectrum is much wider than that, right? The spectrum that really separates us is not just... How you, how you think about uh, reclaiming peace for, for the plight of the oppressed. What you, the, the big difference is actually between believers and unbelievers. What we think in terms of whom we have to establish peace with, right? Are we establishing peace with one another in and of itself? Is that the biggest, is that the biggest difficulty that we face? Or is it actually establishing peace with the living God? Like, the contrast is stark. Think about the way that the scripture actually starts to describe it, right? Our peace is otherworldly. So, so much so that when it starts to describe the unbeliever here, it says that they are like night, whereas we are like day in the text. Or it said in verse 5. Or it says, um, for example, that they are asleep, but it says that we are awake, right? Or it says um, that they are drunk, but that we are sober, right? The, the, or that they are light, or we are light, but they are darkness. Ultimately, the words that are used to contrast the two are as different as they could be. And it's interesting because what it's actually trying to tell us is this. The way that you guys view peace and the way that the unbeliever views peace and safety should be completely different. Completely. It shouldn't be one of those things whereby you're sitting down with the unbeliever and you're having a chat and you're speaking about peace and safety and then by the end of the conversation you're like, man, like, I can't believe they're not a Christian, man. Because I've heard that many times. I just can't believe they're not a Christian. Like the way we speak about this, right? It might it sounds like they like they're a Christian with the way they speak. If it sounds like they're a Christian, then it probably sounds like you're not. Because the way that we speak about peace and safety couldn't be more different 
For us, when we're talking about peace and safety, we're saying that the wrath of God is satisfied. I'm no longer at war with the living God, that I can come to him as a child and he can look at me and, and, and he can be my father and, and, and that we're no longer and that we're no longer at enmity, but I've been adopted and brought into the family of the living God. Which unbeliever speaks like that? Name one. If the unbeliever is literally saying, Do you know what? I thought Brexit was gonna be I thought Brexit was gonna be peak, but now listen, we're it's actually it's actually gone all right and we're still and, and, and the Europe and we're still like we're still pally, we hugged the EU as we left, da, 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 and then you're like, yeah, 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 I can't believe they're not a Christian. I'm telling you, your peace is wrong. It's your peace, your view of peace is wrong. That's not how we view peace as the Christian. That's not the ultimate peace that we're that we that we're setting our, our, our eyes on. Even if this even if uh, I saw there was a period where some friends were showing me, but World War Three looked like it was starting. And I saw the way that, I saw the way that the picture online, people start to put pictures and various stories and various ideas up. And, and, and the way that people were talking about it as though there was, no, there was no more peace in the world. The way that if this happens, there's no more peace in the world. But the thing is, even in the midst of war, the believer can have peace. And that's a reality that is just so otherworldly. Is starkly different. And this is because, as another point, our assessment of peace is different. Right? Our assessment of peace is entirely different. You see, the world live as though everything is fine. They're saying peace and security, right? We're saying that they're wrong. They're saying who's at war with them. We're saying God, right? They don't understand that though. That's something they just can't get their heads around. For us, we're saying this is an urgent message. They're saying, no, we have time. We're saying, wake up. They're saying, it's time to sleep. We're saying, sober your mind. They're saying, I can be drunk. Right? The unbeliever doesn't understand this because what they're viewing peace as is completely different. Right now, there's a, there's a picture. Um, we call these things, um, there's, a, there's a thing, a concept in this world called gifts, right? And a gif is like a picture with... Um, that's moving, like it's a little snippet from a video, right? It might be a small snippet from a video, it might last like maybe three seconds and it'll just be on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. There's a little gift that somebody keeps on sending me and I love it, but it's a gift that says, um, it's, like a, it's like a dog sitting down and it's, got, and it's drinking coffee and the whole house around him is on fire and then there's a little words there just saying everything is fine. And he's just drinking coffee and the fire's burning the house down and things are falling down, he's just saying everything is fine. Everything is fine. Listen, that's as foolish as it is. That's literally what the unbeliever is doing. The unbeliever sits down and everything is, they see the sin around them. They see the evilness. They see the sin within. They know that if for their lives to count for something, they must be held accountable. And yet at the same time, they're just sitting down and saying, everything's fine. Peace and safety. Because Caesar guarantees it. As though Caesar is perfect or as though Caesar can save them. But actually, we know that the only one who can grant peace, true peace, is Christ alone. Because we need, because he's the one with whom we're at war at, right? We're at war with the living God. So only God himself can grant us peace. And so our assessment is completely different. The source of our peace is different, right? You're seeing how, we, how this is just how different we are with the unbeliever. The source of our peace is different. You see, for us, when we think about peace, we say that God needs to create in us a new reality, right? We actually realize that because this whole world is falling into chaos, 
We know that we need God to actually create a new creation in us, right? We need, we need a new creation. We need a new world. We need God to actually restore all things that have been broken. We need the same God that spoke into the world and the sun that went forth and the spirit that hovered over the universe. We need that same God to speak peace because we're at war with him. We need that Prince of Peace to come down and actually make a way for us to actually be united again to God. We need the Spirit of God who is the Comforter to come and apply that peace to our hearts. We need a new peace, a new reality altogether, right? That's that's how we think through peace. That's the, the source of our peace is the loving Father, the Prince of Peace and the Holy Spirit of God who actually grants it and applies it to us. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful source of peace. For the unbeliever... It's these cheap ideas that we've fallen for already and the whole world fell and death spread to all men, right? It's these ideas that we can have peace apart from God, that we can have life apart from God, that we can somehow go sidestep our way into heaven, right? Or sidestep our way into peace. Don't forget, that's, that's literally what Satan did in the garden. When he said... God didn't really say that. God didn't really say we can have life. You just don't, you can have knowledge. You just don't need him. It's a foolishness, right? One thing that the fool brought into this world was chaos. And so when you have people saying peace and safety amidst chaos, all they're doing is the devil's work, right? Only children of chaos are content with being at war with God. Only children of chaos are content with calamity. We can't say peace and safety unless we know that God is actually going to do away with all those things that are causing chaos in this world. To say peace and safety and to be content with the wickedness of this world is to prove that our hearts are wicked themselves. And so the nature of our peace is different. Because we don't live as those whose peace can be shaken by the circumstances of this world. Because our peace is completely otherworldly. The source of our peace is otherworldly. The source of their peace is in the circumstances. Our source of our peace is rooted in Christ. Their peace flows from no more war with man. Our peace flows from no more war with God. They live as those whose king can be shaken and therefore the kingdom that he offers can eventually be shaken. We live as with Christ as the king who has proven that even when death comes his way, he can't be shaken. Even when Satan literally comes to try and take him down, he conquers. And so we know that we can trust in his kingdom and in this king because as our elder preached not too long ago, actually... He brings to us an an unshakable kingdom. A kingdom that can't be shaken. A kingdom that can't be moved. And even when God shakes the entire world, his kingdom will stand. And finally, we prepare different. You see, it says that nobody knows the hour nor the day, right? I, I remember when... Actually, funny enough, my wife says I don't use enough analogies of her when I preach, so I'm using an analogy of her. I remember when we were given... Um, when we were giving birth to Eden, when we, imagine, when she was about to give birth to Eden, right? Um, obviously, it's your first child, and so you go through, like, it's, it's, it's weird. Like, my wife had two personalities throughout the, whole, throughout the whole time. She had one personality that was like, I need to nest, or nesting. You've never heard of it, guys. Wait. The nesting is when they start to 
prepare their nest for the child beforehand before the child is even there and so everything <laughs> like maybe she's two months pregnant we need to go and buy the pot we need to do this we need to set up the room we need to design this we need to do this what about when she's reading and she falls we need to stick this here we need to do this she's only, she's only you're only two months pregnant my dear but 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 you want to nest you want to prepare the house for the child at the time when she doesn't even know when the baby's coming yet i've, I've prepared my hospital bag at six months and this and that and this and that that means the night the, the, the moment the baby that the hospital starts we need to be there i'll have the hospital bag we put it in the, in the car or it's even in the car already and this that the other and we're ready we're ready we're preparing because we know what's coming Whereas in the other time, my wife also had this other personality. This personality that thought she, thought she had all the time in the world. And so my wife, at the one point, the night before, the night before, imagine the night before, she gave, like, the night before her waters broke, she decided, let me start taking out my hair. You know, like, my wife was very interesting. She was like, let me do my nails, let me do this, let me do that. And she started doing all of these types of things. And she started, like, getting, glamming up, glam, glam, glamour. She was, she was, a, she was a glam mama. She wanted to be a glam mama when the baby was born. So she was doing all these things and she was getting ready, getting ready, getting ready. And, you know, she started taking out her hair and she said to herself, you know, I'll finish it in the morning. You don't finish in the morning. <laughs> she, she lied down, she went to sleep. Do you remember what the scripture said? Those who sleep. She went to sleep. And it was just her pop. And her water broke. And as soon as her water broke, she started getting ready, started getting ready. By this point, my, uh, you see the way girls take out her hand, they cut parts of the thing. Half of her hair was just... <laughs> half of her hair was just there. And then half of her hair was just there. And so she was cutting and, and, and her hair wasn't... She, she didn't finish. She didn't finish. And the thing is, it's interesting because in one sense, she knew what was coming and so she was so prepared. Right? But in another sense, the other Aluchi, right, she thought she had all the time in the world, right, to get things right. She felt she, she didn't have to, she felt she didn't have anything to worry about. But notice the scripture says, actually, it's like when the, when the pain comes on a woman with child. She doesn't know when it's coming, but the moment it's there, she can't escape, right? It catches them off guard. It catches them in the middle of the night, right? You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Because it will surprise you. And so you have to be prepared. Notice, we live different. We prepare differently. Those who are believers actually anticipate the coming of Christ. Those who are unbelievers are oblivious to it. Those who are believers are, are actually awake. Those who are unbelievers are asleep. Those who are believers are, so, are sober-minded, it says. Those who are unbelievers are drunk. We trust the unbeliever is trusting in the hope of life, right? And they're trusting in life as it is. We are, trust, we are hoping through death, right, that we will be with the Lord. We, they walk in sin and opposition. We walk in faith and love, it says, right? We have a mindset that looks beyond just the grave. Because we say, actually, my Lord is either coming back while I'm alive... Or I'm going to meet him when I die. But listen, either way, one day we're going to stand before the living God. And I want to be ready when that time comes. And so final point, point three. Heaven and hell. Right? So we've looked at peace and security and how it differs. And then we've looked at how the fact that our peace and security differs causes us to walk and live differently to the unbeliever. But the thing is, the great dividing line does not stop at how we walk, but where we end, right? 
It's not just how we walk different, but it's actually we end up in different places, right? The thing is only one voice matters, right? Only one voice matters because only one type of peace and one type of safety will, will actually keep us and save us, right? There's only one. Yeah, and so the biggest question that we have to ask is actually this. Who is telling us there's peace? Who promises us the peace that we're so desperately hoping in, right? You know when Caesar died, his official last words, the ones that are written down as, as Caesar's last words, we don't know whether that was actually it, but his official last words were this. I found Rome a city of clay, but I left it a city of marble. What strong last words? Caesar's estimation of himself was high. Let me, let me put it to you like this. When I was, um, when I first, when I finished university, when, I was, when you're in university, every day, every three, four months, you get like a, a present in your, um, in your account called student loan. And when that drops, everyone's rejoicing because now I know that I can, you know, you see a few thousand, you're living, you're living and you think, wow, this is, this is interesting. After you finish university, and you start working, something even more interesting happens, right? You actually start receiving student loan every month. And you're like, wow, like I'm receiving a, sal a salary. Wow, this is, the first time you think it's a mistake. You say maybe student loan is still sending you money. The next time you're like, wow, I'm, I'm actually receiving, I'm receiving, I'm receiving money now. And, and, and so you feel like you start feeding yourself. And so I went to university, uh, I went to university in Norwich and that's where I met my wife. So I actually went back to visit her. Um, she was still doing two more years there. Um, and when I went back to visit her, you know, I went back, and I went back different because, you know, initially, I think I've told the story in one of the Bible studies I was doing, but, you know, when you're, when, you know, back at uni, when you're, when you're struggling, you know, you eat, like, sometimes I would even eat something like I'll buy a pack of bourbons for 40p, the big pack, and then, and then I'll buy water, and then you just be drinking water and bourbons, and then if you get too hungry, again, in the middle of the night, you just, you just top up some water, and then you try and go back to sleep, you know, like, just that kind of thing, and you have to, you have to make, you have to be very wise steward. You had to be a wise student, you had to like, manage your finances, and, you, and it was tight. But when you now go back to the uni, and you now have all of this money in your account, and you're thinking, wow, I'm a different man. You go back, and you start feeling yourself. So, Alicia, I remember one day, I think I was going to surprise you or something, and I went to the town first, and I said, you know what, let me go to the shops. Let me go to the big shops now that I couldn't go and afford before. And I went into one, I went into one, I even, I even went to Hugo Boss, and I said, wow, today, I'm going to look around. And you know what, I'm used to buying, I said I need a new bag, in particular. And I remember that my, every time I get a bag, I, purchased, I used to purchase perfumes and can get a free bag with it, right? So I used to live off free bags. But now I said, no, those free bags, sometimes it was a Hugo Boss free bag. I said, no, today I'll buy a bag. So I went in there, I said, no, it can't be too expensive. I went in there and I saw something like um, 15 pounds. I said, 15 pounds for a bag for a Hugo Boss bag? I said, yeah. I said, easy, I can do that now. So I went and bagged the bag, I couldn't do that before. I went and bought the bag, took it to the till, said, I'm buying this Hugo Boss bag for 15 pounds, please. I mean, I'm buying this Hugo Boss bag. And then she was like, and she scanned it. And then I realized that there was no dots. And I thought, so what, I thought it was, I thought it was 15 pounds. There was no dots in between. And so she said, you know, this would be 1,500 or something like that. I said, whoa. I said, oh, I said, and you know me, I'm a foolish, I'm a foolish. I, 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 I stood there and I said to her, Oh, and you know you can't just say, I can't afford this. <laughs> so at that point, I'm wondering, I'm working through all the options. I'm saying, do I buy the bag and then, come, and then return it by mail? <laughs> do I buy the bag? I'm trying to think through the different options that I have. And you know, I, I'm there talking to the woman. I'm there like, I don't even know if I have their money in my account. And I'm saying to the woman, okay, do you know, um, 
time. I didn't know it was that much. I didn't realize, but, but let me see if I still want it. I'm looking inside. I said, oh, I, I said, this bear, does, does this help you fly or something? Like, I'm, you know, I'm laughing. With, I'm trying to laugh. And she's just looking at me like stern-faced. Like, this guy's wasting my time. And eventually I said, you know what? Maybe if it was like 750, I said I would have bought it, but not for 1500. I said, not for 1500. I said, I'm going to put it. I thought it was like, nah. I said, maybe if it was 750, I would have bought it. I didn't really see the tag, but don't worry. I'll put it back for 1500. I don't really think I'll buy it right now. Maybe I'll come back. Um, I put that back down. What I realized in that moment was my estimation of myself didn't matter. Um, because when I got to the till, whether I had the money mattered. Um, and whether I could actually afford it comfortably mattered. And actually, therefore, my estimation didn't mean anything. My estimation of myself didn't mean anything, right? And in the same way, Caesar can get to the end of his life and say, do you know what? I started this city with clay. I ended this city with marble. I've done a great thing, right? Apparently, he even told his son, uh, when you actually assess what his real last words were, um, when he's asking, apparently one, one author says, actually, he was talking to his son, and he said, did I do great? Was I a great king? If so, then give me a royal, give me a royal exit then, or something like that. Listen, the guy thought he was everything, right? He thought he was the best thing ever. But the point is this. It doesn't matter how much he thinks he was or how big he thinks he was, because in the end of the day, when you get to the end, and you get to the till, and you have to cash in, that's when, that's when it really matters. It's not your estimation of yourself, but it's actually what God thinks of you, right? Because what does it matter if you have the biggest bank balance on earth, but in the end of the day, your balance before God is low? If you have nothing that you, can, you can't atone, you can't pay for your sins. What happens at that moment, right? Because in the end of the day, even though he was able to turn clay to marble, death can quickly turn a man's supposed peace into wrath. You see? And so there are devastating consequences for getting it wrong, right? There are devastating consequences for getting it wrong. You know, we have come to the point, one man said, one apologist, I think, uh, when he was, um, he was speaking, to, I think, to students or something like that. His name was Ravi Zacharias. As he was speaking, and I, I used to love this quote, but he says, essentially, we get to the point where we have to realize that the truth matters, especially when we're on the receiving end of a lie, right? We have to realize that the truth matters, especially when... We're on the receiving end of a lie. Because the thing is, as the scripture says, right, Christ has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, um, who died for us so that whether we are awake or we're asleep, we might live with him, right? But by contrast, notice, even though he didn't destine some of us, he hasn't destined us for wrath, he has destined some. Some are destined for wrath, right? It's not just the contrast between light and day, but between salvation and wrath between being safe and secure and being destroyed right they are two big differences and if you don't live by the power of christ you will be crushed by his power right if you don't live in his life you will know and experience eternal death and that's not a good thing unbelievers will never have peace this is the final point here unbelievers will never have peace I read Isaiah 48, or Elder read Isaiah 48 um, earlier, and if you notice, the resounding end, there's a, there's a very strong way that that chapter ends, and it essentially says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Not that they even have some peace. Not that they have a type of peace, but as far as God is concerned, there is no peace for the wicked. 
right? No peace whatsoever. Notice, in the early 2000s, there was actually a, a particular type of fraudulent activity that became really popular, um, very popular. Um, I was young, but old enough to see it. And, and it, was, it, it became very popular, especially amongst people in my age range. And there were only three steps, and they were actually quite simple in the way that it worked. You would acquire or offer your debit card, right? You would acquire somebody's debit card or you would offer someone your debit card. And then they would get somebody inside a bank, right, to transfer wealth from somebody's account who was rich and who wouldn't notice to your account who was poor, so you would notice. And then, it was sounded so good so far, because the thing is, actually, that part was not too difficult. That part, people got done. That part was fine. And so at this point now, you have to appreciate, somebody who, has, who was poor has now been made rich, right? And they're thinking in their head, everything's fine and dandy, right? They're thinking there's no more problems here, right? But then, it's at this next step where things begin to fall apart. Because at this next step, you need to then withdraw the money. You see, at this point, somebody's got the debit card and their card has now been pumped up with money and now they've got loads of money on their account, but the problem comes when you need to withdraw, when you need to cash in your check, when you need to actually take a withdrawal, you need to see if this payment actually comes through. And so, at that point, when you get to the till, you try and ask the cashier, I want to draw, withdraw 10,000 pounds. You, your small self, wants to withdraw 10,000 pounds. And you ask somebody, I'm going to withdraw this 10,000. And the cashier will just look at you and say, and, and, and because they were aware of how this thing works, they just looked at the account, they looked at where the money came from, it says that it's unidentified or whatever, and they start asking them questions. Where did you get this money? How did you come into wealth so quickly? Why are you cashing out everything that one go? How did this happen? And very quickly, before you can even really break down or try and provide your excuse or try and provide your rationale, all of a sudden the doors have slammed shut, the barbed wires are up, and you're being arrested, is how it often worked out, right? And your account will be closed and numerous things of that type of ilk. And it was interesting because this is very similar to what happens when it comes to salvation. So many people have built up their ideas and their ideologies and these, and these worlds on this earth and they've said to themselves, actually, do you know what? I'm rich. I don't need. I don't need to come into heaven or to acquire um, God's peace by his means. I can get in, but as it says in uh, John 10.1, 10, truly, truly, I say to you, he who enters into the sheepfold by the door, and um, who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief or a robber. These people try and essentially act like thieves and robbers. They're trying to enter or acquire some type of peace, but without God's means. They want God's peace, but without God's means. They want God's grace and God's mercy without the God who gives it. It's almost similar to, um, I had a sister around my house yesterday, and my daughter, Ebony, didn't want, didn't want her. She just didn't want her, to be very frank. And I gave, eventually, but my daughter, Ebony, loves food. So I gave my daughter, I gave this sister yogurt. My daughter, <laughs> she went and held on to me for dear life or trying to consume the yogurt from the person. And what thy daughter at that point showed was something profound. She wanted the yogurt, but she didn't want the sister who was giving it. Right? And in the same way sometimes, that's how people are when it comes to unbelief. 
They want the benefits of Christianity without the responsibility of worshipping the one who actually gives those benefits. They want the salvation and they want to enter into heaven. They want to receive the peace. They want to claim peace and safety, but actually they don't want the one who provides it. Right? They don't want the only true God who can provide it. Instead, they try and get in some other way. But the thing is, when they've built up themselves and they've defined this, this peace for themselves, etc., and they get to the finish line and they get to the gate, they can't cash in their check. Because when the judge starts to ask them questions and they start to offer their excuses, they realize that actually, this money that's in my account is counterfeit. This money that's in my account is stolen. I'm trying to break an entering, but the judge of all the earth has sussed me out. And so they're not allowed in. And so that means that irrespective of how rich you feel, or how much peace you think you have, it doesn't matter if you can't cash it in on the day that it actually matters. And the peace and security you think you feel is useless if you're still susceptible to catastrophe. And so think about it like this. Martin Luther King had that wonderful dream. And this is how I'm going to end. Martin Luther King had that wonderful dream. right? He, when, he, when he spoke about when Malcolm X gave the speech, the ballot and the bullet, that was probably one of the greatest speeches ever given. When, Michael, when Martin Luther King gave the speech, um, I have a dream. Again, it was one of the greatest speeches ever given. But notice, as a Christian, we have much much more than just a dream we have a reality right we have a reality martin luther king dreamed that one day little black boys and little black girls would 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 be able to dance around together in the streets etc etc um but listen as christians we have a reality right we have a reality that actually one day people from every single tribe tongue and nation will gather together before the throne of God and sing one united song, right? A reality that says that even though we might be from different tribes and tongues and nations, and even though we might be from different backgrounds, and even though we might have different life experiences, we're united by the one spirit that brings us together and grants us a perfect peace even now one with another. Because that peace is united, uh, we are united by the peace that Christ himself has given us. It's a reality that says that even though everything around me might be crumbling and might be coming down in flames, the God of all peace is working all things together for my good, right? And that even though I may suffer now, I can count it all joy because behind every single hard day is the purpose of a loving father. It says that even though I may die, I know I live because my redeemer lives. And it says that even though the storms of life may come, I still have an anchor that's steadfast and sure, that keeps the soul. You see, this is a type of peace that the unbeliever just can't offer. And they just can't give. And so even though Caesar might have been able to say peace and safety, Christ can give peace and safety to us. And so I pray that as we end this service, that we will have this, this just this serious understanding that only God and his peace alone is the one that satisfies us. Amen. Um, please, as we come to a close, please can you turn in your hymn books to 568, hymn 568. Um, will your anchor hold in the storms of life um, when the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the